A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, that's 2022 almost over. It's certainly been an eventful year. We've seen the death of the Queen, a major war in Europe, and the world's richest man trying to convince us that the future's on Mars. Mars, Mars is a fixer upper of a planet, so it's, it's going to take some work. But one day we could make Mars a planet like Earth, and I think we should. It's all been quite heavy. But it's also had a share of farce, surreal scandals, and bizarre happenings. Among which was the slap at the Oscars. <laughs> oh, wow! The semi royals who have taken to Netflix in their desperate appeal for privacy. This is not a surprise to anybody. It's really sad that it's got to this point. And of course, there was Liz Truss. We have made mistakes. I'm sorry. But what's been happening here? To give us a taste of what we've been covering in the Belfast Telegraph is our editor, Owen Brannigan, the security correspondent, Alison Morris. The Northern Ireland editor Sam McBride, and we're also joined by Gillian Halliday from the features team. So, Owen, Alice, and Sam, you're all very welcome to the Bell Tale. Can we set the scene? Can we just find out what your what the story of the year was for you, Owen? Can I start with you? Yeah, well, 2022, I think everybody will agree, has been a year like no other. Um, And in terms of it's, I mean, this time last year, as we come to the end of 2021, all the talk was of when COVID restrictions were going to end, when we were going to be able to get rid of masks. We were negotiating a path from one set of restrictions to another set of restrictions. And that is, that's not just in Northern Ireland. It was the Republic. Um, England was certainly a, a step ahead. But Now, 12 months on, nobody's even talking about COVID. It's not even the big, the, it's not even the medical story that's, uh, uh, that people are thinking about most. It's, it's been replaced by strep A in, in, in that field because obviously we've uh, a war, as you said, in Europe and a cost of living crisis, which I suppose is where the war and the global problems um, meet everyday life in Northern Ireland where it's basically affected everything from the price of fuel to the price of a bottle of milk which I think um, has <laughs> if depending on where you shop has practically doubled in the last year so it's and then on top of that you've got deadlock in the executive in Stormont where we are now effectively being governed by civil service and we've had an election which was talked about for about you know, for about four or five years and it basically delivered the predicted result, which was stalemate. So it's it's been quite a, that's that's just 
tipping the iceberg <laughs> or, or it's just really kind of touching the edges of what's happened in 2022. Um, but it's it's a year that I think most people won't forget in a hurry. Sam? Well, Owen's just stolen basically everything that I was going to say there. But I mean, it's it, it's been a year of incessant news. I mean, I feel pretty exhausted, frankly, because one story has stopped. I mean, I, I, I mean, it, it's it's really incredible when no one mentioned there about COVID being um, twelve months ago that that was the dominant thing that it was. That there has been so much that has happened since then. I think if 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 I was to pick out one thing this year, it would be the death of the Queen as a really seminal moment um, in global history. Buckingham Palace has announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. In some in some ways, people will say, what does it matter? She didn't have any direct power. Um, she had limited even indirect influence, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But this was the passing of an age. This was the passing of, in some ways, the remnants of the age of deference in Britain. Um, and it was a point where, I suppose, a form of Britishness almost came to an end. From across the United Kingdom and around the globe, they came and they waited and they queued. All for this, a chance to say goodbye, not just to a monarch, but to a woman who meant so much to so many. There's going to be a very different attitude to King Charles, um, to what there was to the uh, Queen. The King represents something quite different and that will be particularly significant in Northern Ireland because obviously there are people in this part of the UK who feel more loyalty to the royal family than almost anywhere else in the UK. So they will be paying very close attention to um, his pronouncements, to his coronation in coming months, etc. And that's that's going to be very significant in terms of the wider constitutional debate about the future of Northern Ireland. So I've been very heavy so far, Alison. Well, first of all, I'd like to say people think that newspaper editors live in ivory towers, but ours knows the price of a pint of milk, which I think is real progress. I'm not sure if we go down into, you know, the Daily Mail and ask their editor the price of a cost of milk, they'd be able to ram it off the top of their head. So at least we know that ours is grounded. Um, I think the, the big story was the absolute meltdown that went on within the Tory party in Westminster. And that does have a, a complete direct effect um, on us. There's no getting away from this. Millions of people are facing horrendous mortgage repayments. Exactly. And she's admitted it's her fault. I'm just, Mr Speaker, I'm genuinely unclear about what You know, Sam's talking about the death of the Queen. The death of the Queen extended Liz's, Liz Truss's time as Prime Minister by at least 10 or 11 days. It would have been much shorter than it was, despite the fact she now holds the record for the shortest Prime Minister in history. And a lot of that can be traced back to what went on when we think about what happened with Theresa May and that confidence and supply deal with the DUP when all of a sudden, you know, as journalists, we had all of these English reporters phoning us and saying, could you please explain who the DUP are? Because it was just they were the kingmakers at Westminster. But what happened from that? They helped put Boris Johnson in a position of power. What he did over COVID then resulted in him being ousted. Liz Truss's quick, you know, um, time in, in number 10 and then Rishi Sunak. And, you know, we're seeing now the outcomes of that because at that stage we had Boris Johnson and then Liz Truss concentrating on dealing with the protocol and that protocol bill. And because of the absolute mess that they made, Rishi Sunak has zero interest in that. He's currently trying to, to fix the economy and that will have an impact on us because... 
as the DUP keeps saying, we don't get an executive until there's an issue around the protocol. And with the cost of living and everything else that's going on, the absence of politics here has been really key. But while, you know, Gillian gets to talk about nice things like the Oscars, as we know, I am the murder and mayhem correspondent. So most of my stories aren't of nice, pleasant things like people in fancy dresses going to the Oscars. Well, we've mentioned Gillian and that's Gillian Halliday, who works in our features team. Gillian has been looking at the big stories of 2022 and she came up with four stories and they're very different from the stories we've spoken about up to now. Gillian, so what's the first one you've picked out? Um, I had to go with Dairy Girls, of course, naturally. Dance two, drum roll please, sister. Have you lost your actual mind? 2022 was the year that we had our final Dairy Girls series and... The gang went out in absolute style thanks to a very uh, fantastic Lisa McGee finale that had everyone in tears and she managed to surprise fans with star cameos throughout the series with Liam Neeson and Chelsea Clinton. Apologise, Miss Mallon. You did provide us with quite specific details of the suspect's rear end. Let's stay with show business. And there's a story that we all will remember for a long time. The schlap at the Oscars. <laughs> Um, Will Smith charged up and beat Chris Rock uh, in, the, in, the, in the bake. Uh-oh, Richard! <laughs> oh, wow! Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. Keep my wife's name out your fucking mouth! Yeah, it, it was an extraordinary story because essentially it should have been an occasion where Will Smith would remember for all the right reasons he had an Oscar win at that ceremony but it was completely upstaged by his own actions such was his actions on stage fundamentally it became known as the slap heard around the world so it spawned so many headlines op-eds debates and it earned Smith a 10 year ban from the Oscars so I would say Chris Rock is probably the, the, the person coming out of this with the last laugh Kian West, the meltdown is something... Can I just correct you? Yes. Kanye West. Kanye? I'd never heard the name said before in my life. Really? I'd the never biggest, heard it said. The biggest artist, one of the biggest artists ever. What does he paint? <laughs> a music artist. You know, I've never heard of I've never heard of songs. I've never I've never heard of him. But he is a character presented to me by Twitter as someone I should know. So Kanye West, and he's now known only as Jay. He's a rap artist, and he is a person of color. Has somehow decided to decide that Hitler wasn't so bad, and he, there was a lot to admire about the Nazis. It's 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 pretty it's pretty profound. That's right. You're not Hitler. You're not a Nazi. You don't deserve to be called that and demonized. Well, I I see I I see good things about Hitler. Also, every human being has something of value that they brought to the table, especially Hitler. Well, given that Kanye West talked about his admiration for Hitler on a podcast by Alex Jones, um, it's an extraordinary video to watch because anyone familiar with Alex Jones will know that it's a rare time to see him flustered (laughs) or trying to dampen controversy rather than stoke it so 
to, to witness Jones actually try and give Kanye or Ye a way out of what he's just said is extraordinary to watch. But also, I think it also needs to be pointed out, though, that Ye has had in the past um, publicly talked about his mental health issues. And I believe there's a bipolar diagnosis in there. So I think it, it should be the coverage of this should be tempered with the fact we're probably dealing with someone with serious mental health issues and probably needs help help rather than doing um, rounds of podcasts and interviews with various people. Elon Musk has certainly been in the news. Elon Musk announced in April that he was going to buy Twitter for a sum of around $44 billion. It finally happened there in October and it seems to be, let's just say, a bit chaotic at the Twitter headquarters all over the world. The billionaire strode into Twitter's headquarters this week, holding a kitchen sink. A not-so-subtle message to the company's thousands of nervous employees that the reality of him being their new boss needed to sink in fast. And he's engaged on online spats with even our own Secretary of State, Chris Heaton-Harris, over the word tosh, which was a subject of much amusement to people. He's had issues with Stephen King over plans to charge for the monthly tick or check notification that they have on there for people that are public figures and things. And he's had a lot of advertisers say adios um, following following his takeover. So um, A number of uh, journalists at national uh, news outlets, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, and here at CNN, uh, have been permanently, it seems, suspended from Twitter. Now, all those journalists, uh, including myself, happen to be people who cover uh, Elon Musk. Thank you very much, Gillian. Thanks, Karen. The, the, the Kenya, Kenya West, <laughs> Kenya West, <laughs> Kenya West. I don't even know who Kenya West is. <laughs> but, uh, why are you talking about the Oscars? I mean, like this is the Belfast Telegraph, and there's a film called Belfast won an Oscar this year, and you're talking about Kane East or Clint Westwards or whatever, whoever it is, and you're not even talking about Sir Kenneth Branagh. Best original screenplay, 2021, know. won an Oscar. And the Oscar goes to... Kenneth Branagh, This is the first Oscar for eight-time career nominee, Kenneth Branagh. It's, it's interesting when you talk to people about... I mean, I think it got a better reception with people who aren't from Belfast. Um, uh, because the more people you talk to from Belfast about the film they're the ones who have the um, they're the toughest crowd certainly when it comes to this when it comes to this film and I, on a personal level um, certainly for 2022 um, as regards highlights in terms of work but reading that the film Belfast had won an Oscar via a Belfast Telegraph news alert at about half six in the morning. That would certainly be up there because we actually, we did round the clock coverage on it. And I think, you know, being able to break the news to people in Northern Ireland when, when they woke up that morning, that Sir Kenneth had won an Oscar. I think that was a little, it wasn't, you know, won't go down as a highlight of the year, but it certainly was a, a tick in the right direction anyway. 
Let's come right back home to Northern Ireland. And there have been a lot of new stories this year in Northern Ireland. Just to remind people, because it's very, very difficult to conceptualise the whole year. I mean, Alison, there have been a number of gangland land killings, for example, in this year. Northern Ireland seems to have deteriorated into a much darker place, really, in many ways this year. Sean Fox was shot dead yesterday afternoon inside this West Belfast social club. Police say two masked men escaped on foot along Suffolk Road. You know, in terms of people think of Northern Ireland as being a very violent place, but when it came to sort of ordinary crime, if you like, it's never been a place that's been particularly dangerous to live. Um, that crime was, was very motivated towards the Troubles. It was very sectarian. It ended more or less, ended completely after the, the Good Friday Agreement. But what I have noticed is that the rise in something that we maybe would have associated maybe with inner city cities and other places in the world, or indeed that sort of Dublin crime, um, gangland type feuding, and the killings have got increasingly violent. So we had the, the murder of Sean Fox, which took place in front of over 100 people. He was shot numerous times by two men who casually walked in and walked out of the bar. But more recently, um, as you were, you know, the killing in, in Newry, extreme levels of violence associated with that feud. Along with that, there was a man who was maimed with, with acid um, in the run-up to that, another victim who was almost decapitated. I mean, these these um, killings and these shootings are getting increasingly increasingly violent, and I've seen that over the past few years. That's something that has increased quite gradually and seems to continue to increase. And I suppose maybe that's part of the normalisation of our society, that we move away from violence that was connected to a political cause or ethos and move towards what we see as that criminality and drug-linked violence. But it is very concerning for people and it does seem that the people who are involved in those sort of drugs and gangland killings are much better armed even than some of those paramilitary groups who are coming near the end of the Troubles. Um, Sam, there's a fascinating story. One of the stories that, that really I remember very well from this year, and that was the bizarre story of Tamara Bronkers, the vet who perhaps in naivety just tried to do her job. Yes, this this was a story which took up a lot of my time this year and uh, it, it's essentially this was a government vet. She was very well respected. She had an unblemished record. She was doing her job very well. She'd been promoted and she was driven out of her job because she tried to raise the alarm about what she saw as animal suffering. She saw it with her own eyes in a, in a livestock market. She took photos of it. She took videos. She tried to show these to Northern Ireland's chief vet, Robert Huey, and he wouldn't even look at them. She left his office in tears. There was a long, there was a long campaign essentially as she sought um, to get her out of that job. She ultimately resigned, and she won a constructive dismissal case against the Stormont Department, the Stormont Agriculture Department. And yet, that individual, Robert Huey, is still in post. There has been a review into his case that was meant to be um, finished in June of this year. It's been with the head of the civil service from around that time, and as far as we can see, nothing has happened and actually one of the people who was also involved in driving her out was promoted temporarily for several months Julian Henderson to be Deputy Chief Vet for Northern Ireland so this is a profoundly flawed system um, I was actually speaking to I, I, I met yesterday with a, with a different government vet who got in touch with me about something and there are very deep problems in the civil service and I think that as we go into a period which could be of well which is of unknown duration it was three years last time without a government who knows what it will be this time 
this is a really um, deeply problematic situation where these people are running Northern Ireland and some of these people are people who you would not want to be running Northern Ireland. Owen, you don't run Northern Ireland, but you run the Belfast Telegraph. (laughs) (laughs) I'll say nothing. (laughs) With Stormont's benches empty and nothing happening there, I... The absence of politics and handing over in the end politics to unelected civil servants. But this sheer lack of, of news coming from Stormont, I mean, is it, is it a problem in terms of filling the paper? Um, well, I, well, you say the absence of politics, but I'd say, I mean, politics doesn't stop because there's no executive running. Um, there's still plenty of stories and we, you know, we, we still have an audience that we have to provide with good content and good lively content. And I mean, like in, in, in many ways, there's more potential with no, you know, with no executive, you know, because there's still plenty of politics going on in the background or whatever. Um, and don't forget, Coming into this year, as I mentioned earlier on, we were looking forward to an assembly election on May the 5th. And yet, if you ask most journalists towards the end of the campaign how they found the campaign, they would have told you it was incredibly dull, very, very predictable. Um, the mo- there was a few isolated instances. There was, you know, infamously posters taken down. There was, I think, one of the people before Prophet um, candidates in East Belfast or whatever had a. It, it was there was an attack on her as well. I mean, fa- it, fa- the most famous case. What I remember of the campaign was actually two stories around two un- who people who were unsuccessfully elected, which is the Elsie Trainer. And the poster thieves, when she caught them on video and ran after them into Ormo Park. And then the bizarre situation where you had the uh, the TUV candidate in South Down, uh, Harold McKee, who was backed by the DUP veteran Jim Wells for election. Um, even that's when Jim was still in the DUP as well. And there, but apart from that, I don't remember too many other instances during the campaign. The point being, that's the normal schedule when politics is supposedly happening very little really happened of substance because, you know, you're dealing with a very, very predictable, um, I suppose, electorate. Everyone, I think beforehand, most people thought Sinn Féin would emerge as the biggest party. Most people thought the DUP would do slightly better than their polling probably suggested. And I think that's what happened. The Alliance, they were easily the third force, but they didn't perform as well as certainly some polls suggested that they might do. The story that I did after the election was the two female candidates who were subject to those deep fake porn films. So Cara Hunter and Diane Forsyth. Diane Forsyth obviously replaced Jim Wells as the, the DUP candidate and both were subjected to an atrocious, dirty campaign of harassment, which included deep fake porn films, which I believe is the first time any election candidate anywhere in the world has been subjected to someone actually going to the trouble of making deep fake porn and posting it online and claiming it was these two women. And so they had to, to run that campaign. They didn't want to speak about it before the vote, but thankfully, and I'm really grateful that they both of them shared their stories with the Belfast Telegraph first, but that those women had to endure that throughout that and both thankfully got elected. So the, the campaign of abuse against them hadn't worked. But I mean, when you're talking about trying to attract more women into politics and specifically very young women, which which they are. I mean, that was hardly a story that would encourage very many people to and, come forward and, and put their name forward. And it's interesting that the other two candidates that I mentioned, like who were the subject of, were both female as well. In terms of politics 
two people died this year. Now, one of them was David Trimble, whose legacy comes from the Good Friday Agreement. But there was also the death of Christopher Stalford, who was a young man and whose death was completely unexpected. There was an awful lot of compassion for Christopher Stalford after his death, Sam. There was, and I was really struck by this. It's been a it's been a very negative year for Northern Ireland politically. It's been a year where there's been polarisation, where we've lost our government, where there are very deep problems that will not be easily resolved. But I think we can sometimes forget the co- the wider context of where we are and how bad things would have been in the past in these sorts of circumstances. And I was really struck when Christopher Stolford died. He was a young DUP MLA. He has a young family. He was well known at Stormont. He was principal deputy speaker. He loved that role. He was good at it. He was very fair in that role. And when the tributes were given to him in the Assembly, I was really drawn to how Sinn Féin approached that. They did not stand up and get one MLA to make a perfunctory statement of condolence on behalf of the party. As sometimes happens with all parties, they want to say the right thing, and that's perfectly natural and normal. Lots of Sinn Féin MLAs got up and spoke very personally, without notes about their um, sparring with Christopher Stolford. He could be quite a aggressive in the chamber, he was vocal, he was a thorn in the side of Sinn Féin, he loved to wind them up, and he was not necessarily the person who you would think they might have felt great sympathy for in those circumstances, but there was really genuine sorrow in the Assembly chamber, and I think that that says something about beneath all of the vitriol that we see that is real and is genuine and is not put on, there is also developing some sort of human empathy there. Words cannot adequately describe the sense of pain and loss that is felt on these benches for a man that meant so much to so many of us. My first interactions with Christopher Stolford, as will be the case, I think, with Alison, were as a DUP press officer, and he was a pretty aggressive press officer, and we had some pretty robust conversations, and um, he could be, he could be very forthright in his views as to what I had said. Um, but he was somebody who was maturing. He was somebody who was very talented, who would have been a DUP minister, might even have been DUP leader at some point, and he was taken very cruelly um, at a very early stage in his life. I was actually speaking to a friend of Christopher's about two days ago and, was, and he was saying about how coming up to Christmas is children. He was just so devastated that he wouldn't be there. He was such a character, but completely and utterly devoted to those children. He took them to work with them regularly. They were regularly up in Stormont. He just, you know, he was a proper hands-on, hands-on father and loved the role of being a father. Um, and it's so sad because he spoke quite openly about losing his own father quite young and I know that he wouldn't have wanted that for his own children. But he was also, you know, as you said, you could have sparred with him, but a massive character. I remember one time in a green room of the BBC him telling me that when he was 15 he had a picture of Margaret Thatcher on his bedroom wall and I'm like, Christopher, that's a bit odd, mate, to be quite honest with you. And uh, he says, well, I'm not a total weirdo, Alice. And I had Buffy the Vampire Slayer on the other wall. <laughs> I think from me, you know, who's relatively new to, to, to you know, paying so much attention, such close attention to Northern politics, uh, it kind of gave a glimpse as to maybe what, you know, the curtains were pulled back a little bit, that this is really what goes on and that these people have developed some kind of relationship, which offers some kind of hope, I think, even at the moment when, when it seems that people are basically stuck at both extremes and there's very, very little give. It does offer a glimpse, you know, because I think by that stage, even the executive had had collapsed at that stage. Paul Given had resigned as first minister. But um, I think 
there was some there was some hope there that there is potential. With with David Trimble, a very different circumstance. Someone who was much more mature in years, who had been out of frontline politics, albeit he was quite an active uh, member of the House of Lords. But I, I, w- I was really interested in the uh, tribute that was given to him by David Burnside, who was one of his most vocal internal critics at key points of how he approached the agreement. And he said to me that basically Trimble got the big calls right when it comes to the agreement, when it comes to how Northern Ireland was set up in that period. Looking back on it, he thinks actually he was largely right. It's not very often you get somebody, even if they think that, um, reflecting and saying, you know what, actually my opponent, as he was to a certain extent, was fundamentally right about that. The important thing was that whenever he agreed something, whenever uh, we settled on whatever the the project was, whether it was on the road into the Good Friday Agreement, uh, he stuck by his word and even though he was under horrendous pressure, within his party from other unionists, uh, some of the wider public, and he stuck to his gun. So um, I got very friendly with him over that 10 years. Now, one of the quirkier stories of 2002 that stands out in my mind is concerns the comedian Joe Lysett, who managed to get a complaint made about himself after a show in Belfast. Can you remind us of that story, Alison? I think that the joke, and I wasn't at the show, and I can't imagine I'd ever be at a Joe Lysett show, but he showed a, a, a picture on the screen of himself as a, a naked baby, and it was reported that someone had made a complaint to the police. The police investigated and said there was nothing to report, but Joe Lysett tweeted about it, and obviously then it became this big, massive story, you know, that we were completely humorless group of people who reported him. But later, the Belfast Telegraph was able to report that the person who made the complaint was actually an off-duty police officer who had been sitting watching the show, had walked outside and had phoned to say, you know, this is basically, you know, displaying of offensive um, images and was told, look, if you have a proper complaint to make, come in and make a statement and actually did go and make the statement. So it had to be investigated then, but obviously was was ruled to be nothing. But it's good to know that those police officers are on the ball, off duty, on duty, sitting watching a comedy show. They're ready to report a crime at any any moment. Oh, and there's, there's another couple of stories that, that have occurred to me as well. I just want to use your sports expertise. Um, <laughs> All right. Our Northern Ireland golfers got themselves embroiled in Live Golf. And for anyone who can't remember, Live Golf is a Saudi Arabian breakaway golf tour, basically, which Rory McIlroy has really gone against and put his friendship with Graham McDowell under pressure. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, what has happened is that effectively Graham McDowell has joined the Live Golf Tour and there, I would have a certain amount of sympathy for him because he was questioned about at a press conferences and where other golfers were happy to hide behind the paychecks to not to put too fine a point on it. He fronted up and answered questions. The problem was when, when he used he used the phrase I think it was that he was he was proud to help Saudi Arabia on their mission to you know grow the game of golf, which saying you're proud to help the Saudi. Saudi in what in whatever aim is uh, it's it's pretty dodgy territory to be to be going on and certainly he 
he said afterwards, and it was at the Adair Golf at the uh, JP McManus Pro Am in Limerick. He said he just wished he'd said nothing, and I think you know he wouldn't have got the bad headlines and he wouldn't have got the negative page ones with the Belfast Telegraph if he just kept them. It's a really hard question to answer. You know, we're just we're just here to focus on the golf and and kind of you know what it what it does globally for you know for you know the role models that these guys are and that we are and uh, yeah. Another person who perhaps should have kept stum, stum, it was Kenny Shields. Okay, oh, Kenny, yes, yeah. Kenny, after a uh, 5-0 defeat to um, England in a, in a pre-European Championship game, Windsor Park in April, he basically, he was asked about the concession of quick goals. You know, I think there was two goals scored within eight minutes and he said, well, you know, girls and women are more emotional than men and they kind of find it hard to deal with. Needless to say, this wasn't... This didn't go down very well. And I think, he, he, in fairness to Kenny, he very quickly realised he shouldn't have said it and he was, a, he was going to regret it, so he apologised very, very quickly afterwards. Yeah. Well, you don't get forgiven for much nowadays, Alison. Did he deserve to be forgiven or...? I, I, I do think because it's, you know, when we're, we're looking at the Doug Beatty situation as well, isn't it? You know, if you keep putting your, your foot in it, I think you'll get forgiven for once. And we know that Doug Beatty said, what, that the DUP were whining like girls. Um... You'll get forgiven for given for those kind of things once, but if you keep on doing it, I think it shows a, an inability to learn from your mistakes, which can be problematic in whatever role, whether you're in a political party or, you know, a, a manager or a team or a commentator or whatever. So um, I think that, you know, when it comes to making those kind of sort of outdated type comments, I think that Doug's issue is that he, he keeps on making them and then having to say sorry. Yeah, and I mean, like, <laughs> at least he didn't mistake Kanye West for Kane West. <laughs> <laughs> was Kanye West at the, the Oscar too? <laughs> oh, he knows his stuff. <laughs> <laughs> One of the stories which stands out in my mind, perhaps, and perhaps it's not a story, a simple historic happening. We had the census results, for example, we had Sinn Féin having a great election and we saw Sinn Féin perhaps confident enough to really take part in King Charles coming to Northern Ireland as part of him becoming king following the death of his mother. I know you had pointed that out before in, in, in Prince Sam. Yeah, I think that if you were looking at this year politically for the big picture, the big picture in Northern Ireland is of the growing confidence of nationalism and the continued, I suppose, lack of confidence within unionism. And that that is not entirely ill-founded because there were dramatic events this year which reinforced that sense that nationalism is in a good place and unionism is in reverse or is at least struggling to stay where it is. And the outcome of the Stormont election where Sinn Féin came first for the first time in the history of Northern Ireland is purely symbolic. It doesn't change anything at Stormont. It doesn't give them any more power, even if if there was to be a Stormont executive. But Northern Ireland politics and Irish politics for centuries have been deeply symbolic. Often they're more about symbolism than about actuality. And so that was a big moment where the DUP had built this up for years as a massive issue. When it happened, they couldn't exactly say, well, it's not really that big a deal, is it? They had told their voters this really mattered. When it happened, 
they really felt this was a problem. Then, because of the fact that Sinn Féin had that extra confidence, they were able to approach the um, the new king coming to Northern Ireland in a very different manner, in an incredibly confident manner, where there must have been some old Republicans looking at that and really wincing and thinking, what on earth are we doing meeting the new king, mourning the queen, wearing black in the assembly, um, giving really, um, really significant speeches in the assembly, using the word Northern Ireland, the words Northern Ireland rather, etc., etc. But I think that was a measure of what Sinn Féin sees as its, as its success, but it shows how incredibly far they had moved. But it, it, what's, what's also interesting is that, you know, just in terms of one of the only real consequences of being a first minister ahead of being a deputy first yeah. minister is you are first in line to meet the monarch. And who knew that this would actually happen a few months yeah. after? Because for years we had heard there's absolutely no difference between deputy first minister and first minister. And then a couple of minutes after, or a couple of months after Sinn Féin become the first party and become first minister designate, they actually get to be first in line. But look, the the following week we had the census results and, you know, for the first time that there's more Catholics than Protestants in Northern Ireland, which obviously is a is a really significant, um, a really significant moment in the history of Northern Ireland, um, given its history. But the previous week with the reception of King Charles III in Belfast, that it was basically, it was only confirmation in, in statistical form of what you could see. You had uh, Sinn Féin First Minister designate uh, by accident of timing, you had a Sinn Féin Lord Mayor Sinn Féin uh, speaker because they hadn't elected a new one because the executive didn't, hadn't sit, sat and uh, Sinn Féin uh, MP for North Belfast John Finucane and that that was basically the census in visual form if you like how you know well an extreme visual form Well let's move on from 2022 let's look at 2023 can we see, like, let's look at the big stories we've talked about. Can anyone see Stormont coming back in 2023? So it's possible, and it hinges on Geoffrey Donaldson, or more precisely, it hinges on the membership of the DUP and whether they will allow Geoffrey Donaldson, if there is a deal with the EU on the protocol, to say that's enough to go back in. That's that's the big call. It's either go back in with something that almost certainly is going to be suboptimal from his point of view, it will not give him everything that he wants, or kiss goodbye to Stormont for five years for ten years who knows for how long because the protocol presumably at that point is going to stay that's that's the massive question and nobody can know that even Jeffrey Donaldson I don't think can know that because he doesn't know the parameters within which he will be able to manoeuvre there he has absolutely no say or part in that deal between Rishi Sunak and the EU and Rishi Sunak will make a deal that is best for the UK its economy is in the toilet and he's trying to repair that and so that's what his main priority is going to be not the future um, fortunes of the DUP but the, the issue that I always see with it is how will Jeffrey Donalds go back and sell it we know and Sam has written about this multiple times that he has tied and self-handcuffed himself to the sort of right wing hardline loyalist element of the DUP they're all or nothing, you know, everything goes or there'll be no storm out. That's not going to happen. We know there has to be checks in place in some way. Can he sell it as, you know, if he went back and sold it as, I am, you know, this tiny little party in Northern Ireland, look what we've done. We've caused the EU to have to come back and negotiate with us and this is what we have won. But will he do that? Probably not. He'll probably sell it as a defeat and, and then he'll still be in the, the same position he's in. So I don't think, I think he will have to go back in eventually because 
it's not just the fact that the wages are going to be gradually cut. Eventually, it'll all be cut, and that takes away your constituency offices, that takes all your constituency workers. And for a party to survive, you need to have that mobilisation on the ground, helping people with their housing problems, their health problems, all of that. That's how you get votes. And if you start then stripping all of those resources away, well, then you start stripping away the actual whole body of a political party. So they will have to go back eventually. Will it be next year? I don't know. And uh, I suppose lurking in the background in 2023 is the 25th anniversary of of the Belfast, the Good Friday Agreement, which, I mean, in normal circumstances, you, you might think might give, might create this pressure that people would be in a rush. But it's almost like it could be also be perceived as a kind of a threat that, you know, it's it, as a bargaining chip said, well, we're not going to do anything and we're going to basically undermine the celebration. I think what we're looking at after after that, and I, I you know, I, the outcome, I don't know no more than anyone else does, but yeah, you're looking, I think, ultimately, there seems to be a momentum building to a more fundamental renegotiation of the Good Friday Agreement, I think, and the implications that that will have in terms of how an executive is formed going ahead. I don't think we're going to get into a new executive with the same threat hanging over us that, you know, that somebody can walk out and then we'll have another 18 months, two years hiatus or whatever at that point. I think enough's enough at this stage. I think basically that everything is going to be on the table when it comes to coalition. Well, is there anything to look forward to next year? Cheaper milk. Is it? Is this cow milk or, or oat milk we're talking about here? That's what I'm fascinated by. Just oh, cow milk, cow milk. <laughs> Look, listen, we spent two years of, you know, COVID and COVID restrictions, not able to go anywhere, not able to do anything. The world is more or less back to the normal now in terms of travel. So I intend to see lots of places. That's what I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to, to um, traveling around and getting plenty of holidays in between working very hard, obviously, as my editors here. I think context is very important in these things. I've just come here from the public record office where I've been going through government files that are being declassified from 1999. Some of them stretch back to the 1950s in Northern Ireland. And when when you look at that, you get a sense that you don't get from social media or you don't even get from our paper every day because we're dealing in news. News is what's new. It's what's immediate. It's what's happening today. But actually, Northern Ireland, the Northern Ireland that I grew up in in the 1990s, when you look at it there, stories of drum cree, 800 something baton rounds, plastic bullets being fired in the space of a few days, worries about the electricity supply. I mean, there there, there is a massive um, sense of progress in this place that we don't always feel as people who live here. We don't always realise. But I think that if you look back, not even that far, you realise that we're still in a very privileged position. Yes, there's rampant inflation and there, there's war in Europe and there are all of these massive, genuine problems. But I think for a lot of us, our parents went through a heck of a lot worse and um, maybe didn't complain about it as much as our generation does. <laughs> Owen, Alison, Sam, thank you very much. This episode of The Bell Tale was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar. The sound design was by Graham Davidson. The clips you heard were from Entertainment Tonight, Fox, CNN, Sky, ITV, the BBC, Netflix and RTE. 
Irish Independent. Terms and conditions apply.